today. Grab a seat, and as you do, grab your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we finish out our study in 1 Thessalonians. If you need a Bible under a seat close by, you can find one. Grab it. Turn with us to this book here. Um, <clears throat> I got just a question to start us. If we, if we just closed the service right now and hopped in our cars and drove down to the mall, and we asked people... Tell me what church is. What responses would we get? Any bold takers? A building. What else? A gathering place? A body of Christ? A place of hypocrites? Legalistic, judgmental, sorry, critical, boring, like-minded. If we got in our cars right now and went down to the mall and we asked people, what, what is church? As I was thinking about that question this week, I just don't know if anyone would answer with the word family. You know, churches, it's a family. This is not at all how we introduced this message in the first service, okay? But I'm just struck by the warmth of this letter that we've studied. All of the expressions of family, brothers and sisters. Early on in the letter, Paul says, we loved you, we loved you like a, a father. We loved you like a father who cared for you. We loved you like, we, we, we took care of you like a nursing mother. All of these family expressions throughout this letter. And, and, even as we close it now, like I just want to kind of give a warning of this. Th- today's message could feel choppy because it, like almost every time Paul starts to close a letter, he's like, it's almost like, and here's everything else I wanted to get into the letter that I have to like try to get in now. And so it can feel like all of these quick hitting things from all these random corners uh, of, I don't think that's what it is though. I think as Paul's closing this letter, Like there's this family tone that's still there where he's like, hey, family, I want you to know there are some things that if these things are evident in your midst, if these things are evident in your midst, I mean, these are signs that our family is flourishing and is healthy. These are signs. These are signs of what a flourishing faith family looks like. And, and I, don't, I don't know about you, but I, I want that for our church. I want that for us. You know, some guy came up after the service. He's newer to our church, and he's like, so two years ago, like it just sunk in. He's like, so two years ago, just over two years ago, there's like 20 of you in a living room? Like, yeah. 
And as the family grows, which by the way, the family should grow if we're all doing our job making disciples, right? But as a family grows, my wife's the oldest of eight kids in her family. We all just were down at Holiday World this weekend with her whole family in a cabin that had one legitimate bedroom. And we're just like, as we all get families, how are we going to do this? How do you maintain, how do you maintain family as family gets bigger? And like, I'm not preaching today with the answer to that. All I'm preaching today with, can all of us together strive to keep family as the family gets bigger? Can we covenant together that we're still going to do the one another's of Scripture with together as this thing gets bigger and bigger? Because my greatest fear for us is that we become a group of people that do the things we just listed here, where we just come to a place for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday, and then we, we, and we come here because we like, the, we, we like the way that we sing some songs, or we like the way someone like delivers a message, but it's, it's so much more than that. We're family, and we're called to do family things together outside of the time that we gather here today. And I'm so glad we are so fortunate that as Paul closes this letter here, I believe he lays before us five signs of a flourishing faith family. Five signs that it's like, man, if these things are evident in your midst, God's going to do some stuff with that family. And um, some of these, I want you to know, some of these things that Paul is going to address here, this is what I love, this is why I love why we teach through books, because there's topics that just come up that the only reason we're bringing them up is because that's where the text goes next. And so some of these, this is not your pastor's passive-aggressive way of dealing with any issues going on in the church, okay? We good? Not my passive-aggressive way of trying to do... Actually, I think what we're going to find in these five things that Paul brings up, praise the Lord, we're going to see these evident in our midst. And yet, even though we see these evident in our midst, we say collectively together, right, Lord, please more and more, would these become increasingly true of us, okay? Deal? Remember that when I get to point one here, okay? Father, come now. Lord, um, how quickly we just try to turn Sunday into singing well-rehearsed songs and then preaching a well-polished message. But Lord, I believe you have bigger hopes and dreams for your body is when it gathers. Lord, when Peter stood up and preached in Acts chapter 2, your spirit cut people to the heart in such a way that they said, what do we do about this? And the church in that moment went from 120 to 3,120 And God, I would just beg you 
would you in these moments here show us what your spirit is capable of doing in our midst? Would you cut our heart with the words that you want to pierce us? And collectively would we say, Lord, what do you want us to do with this? Father, I pray that these signs that we will see of a flourishing faith family, Lord, I pray, would these be evident in our midst? And I believe they are. But Lord, I ask you, would these be more and more true and growing of us? Come now, Lord, speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul lands the plane of this letter here, and he begins to do it in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. And look at what he says here. He says, we ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, who is Paul talking about here? He's writing this letter to this group, this church in the city of Thessalonica, the Jesus followers in Thessalonica. And he's telling the Jesus followers to respect a certain group of people among them. And who is Paul talking about here? I believe Paul is talking to them about respecting um, those that God has called into positions of leadership in their church there. And so everyone comes up to me after I preach a message on like sexual sin and whatnot, and they're like, man, that has to be like the hardest message to preach. No, actually, this is the hardest message to preach. Respect your church leaders. Like, it's not easy to preach that, okay? But it's in the text, and this is what I believe that Paul's bringing up here. He's saying, I want you to, to respect those who God has called to spiritual leadership roles in the church. Now, but understand something here. This is not just a one-sided command here. This is a command for the congregation to respect their church leaders, but the church leaders are responsible for some things here. There's a word in verse 12, three things that church leader better be true of church leaders. He says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who what? What's it say first? Who what? Who labor among you. That word labor there means to toil to the point of exhaustion. The, the idea that Paul is getting across here is your church leaders better be working. The congregation's getting up every day of the week and they're putting their work clothes on and they're going to work and they're getting after it. Church leaders better be getting up every day and getting after it for the kingdom of God. If, if someone is going into ministry because they believe that they just work one day a week, they got, they're, yeah, they're going to find some things out. The ministry was never intended to be a place for lazy men to come and hide. And if that's a fact somewhere, may that change quickly for the reputation of our Lord. But the church leaders are to be laboring among them. They're to be working hard. But then it says this, respect those who labor among you. And then it says, and are over you in the Lord. Now, um, this whole idea of being over others, like the Lord has created leadership structures in almost everything we're part of. 
I mean, he created a husband to be the spiritual leader of the home. He, he created in his ideal setting, uh, when you go into work tomorrow, he's created a leadership structure there for things to operate smoothly. And it's no different in the church. The Lord has created a group of elders, a group of overseers to provide spiritual leadership and direction to the church. Now, you want to see something so cool? You want to see something cool? That word over you in Greek, it's like, it's like one word. And here's what it means. Depending on the context in which that word is used, it can mean to exercise a position of leadership. We get that, right? Or it can also mean, depending on the context in which it's used, to show care and concern for. You're like, wow. Now think about this. And how the Lord has called spiritual leaders to lead he has called them to, to exercise a position of leadership as they care, show care and concern for the flock. He has called spiritual leaders to lead out of an overflow of love. If you don't love people, don't get into ministry. Because God has called shepherds to shepherd the flock out of an overflowing of love. And I just love that dual meaning there of what's going on. That God's called spiritual leaders to lead well. And then he said this, uh, that are over you in the Lord. And then, end of verse 12, and admonish you. What's it mean to admonish? What? what? Okay, uh, okay. It means to, to, to uh, instruct by rebuke or warning. All of us need a good admonishment from time to time, right? Your kids need a good admonishment from time to time, am I right? Um, two weeks ago, I had lunch with kind of my father in the faith, my spiritual mentor. Um, and uh, the, next, the next day, he texted and uh, was like, hey, you're not good. I was like, you're not good. <laughs> no, but he was right. It's like, you're not good. I could hear it in your tone. I could sense you're just worn. You're worn out. Um, you're easily agitated with people right now. You're not good. And uh, he's like, I'm calling your wife. Calling your wife to find out, like, you know, because typically if you want to know, hey, how, how, are you, how am I doing, ask my wife. She'll usually tell you better than I even can. And so there he called and for like a half hour just said, hey, tell me what's, what's Brock's week's looking like? What's his schedule looking like? What's he prioritizing? And they just kind of unpacked all this. And then the next week, my father in the faith, my spiritual mentor, made the hour and 15-minute drive and sat across the desk from me in my office, and he lovingly and gently admonished me. He lovingly and gently admonished me. And he said, your priorities are out of line. Your calendar's out of control. If you want to do the marathon that ministry is, you have to change the pace right now. And he admonished me because he loved me. And now spiritual leaders at times have to come alongside the flock and admonish. We don't like it. We're not like, yes. More admonishment today. We don't like it, but we love you. And I went into that meeting a couple weeks ago going, I'm just going to do whatever he tells me to do. 
I'm gonna submit myself under it because I believe he has my best in mind and God's greatest glory for my life and mine. That, that is what spiritual leaders are called. They're called to, they're called to, um, to, to work hard and to, to lead well and to admonish gently. And that, that's the responsibility of spiritual leaders to the congregation. And then verse 13 says, uh, or verse 12 tells us, so respect those leaders. Verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then it says this, be at peace among yourselves. Why do you think Paul said, be at peace among yourselves? Because I think Paul gets that if Satan can drive a wedge of division between a congregation and those God has called to lead the congregation, things get real ugly with a capital U real quickly. Am I right? And there's something that we have to see that, that a flourishing faith family, a sign of that, number one is this, a sign of a flourishing faith family is this, that we're respecting the leaders God has placed over us. But this goes two ways, that the leaders are loving and shepherding with care and concern those that God has called them to lead. And so I want us to see this picture here, this reciprocal love that church leaders are to love church people. We're going to live as a family when love is the, the, the bind that ties it all together. And then, then church people reciprocate back that love. This is something beautiful in the household of God when this is going on. And man, how we misrepresent the body of Christ when this thing is jacked up. And we see this here. Yeah, 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 church leader, yeah, you're over them, but guess what? That word means to exercise your, exercise your leadership with care and concern. Yeah, you, you want to you take this position and lord it over people? Yeah, not happening in my house. The Lord talking. And then church people, man, when, when God has given you spiritual leaders that are loving you and shepherding you, like, man, love those people. And I say this, I say this, I say this. Remember what I say? Not your pastor's passive-aggressive way of dealing with anything going on here. This congregation is unbelievable at this. Your pastors sit around and like, we get to pastor these people? They're amazing. You're awesome at this. I've told you but you're a pastor's dream. I just say, I want you to know, because we feel the love from you, I want to tell you, we love you. And man, when we blow it at demonstrating the love that we have in our heart for you, when we're not at something that we should have been at, when we miss a critical juncture of your life, when we, when we just blow it somehow as your spiritual leaders, please hear this, we love you. And there will be times that we blow it and we don't demonstrate always perfectly the love that we have in our heart for you. Would you just give us grace when that happens? Because God has created this thing to be a reciprocal love between those God has called to lead the church and the church itself. Deal? But he doesn't only address how the family should work between spiritual leaders and, and the congregation. He also now addresses how, what it should look like within the congregation of those in need. Look at what verse 14 says. He says, and we urge you, brothers, here's this word again, admonish the idle. 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Five signs of a flourishing faith family. Number two is this, that we're full of patience for those in need around us. And he says, be patient with all of these groups of people. Who are the groups of people? Three groups he outlines here. The first group is this, those who are idle. Here it is again in the letters to the Thessalonians. This, this issue of some who should be working, who are able to be working, and who aren't working because they are like parasites leeching off the generosity of the church. And the Lord is like, no, admonish those people. Gently come alongside and instruct them by warning that this is not how this is supposed to work. He says, admonish the idol. But then look at what he says next. Encourage the faint-hearted. That word faint-hearted literally means this, um, uh, to be... Let me look in my notes and tell you what it means. Um, to, to be of little soul. To be of little soul. It literally means life has taken someone to the point of complete despair, complete depression, complete despondency. And he looks at the congregation and he says, when you see people there, encourage them. Don't admonish the ones who need encouragement. And don't encourage the ones who need admonishment. Encourage the ones who need encouragement. And, and this, this, this picture here, to be faint-hearted, to be of little soul, to be completely in despair over life. Like picture a marathon runner coming towards the finish line and he can't finish under his own strength. And you got guys on each side. That's a picture actually from the United Kingdom. The guy in the white sacrificed his marathon time to just help the guy in the black cross the line. That's what we're talking about. But how do we know when people are faint-hearted? How do we go about encouraging people who are faint-hearted? Three ways to encourage the faint-hearted. Here they are. Number one, be there. Number one, be there. Sometimes the greatest things we can do for those in seasons of life like this are to show up and shut up. Just be there. Just show up. Ministry of presence. You see dishes in the sink, start doing dishes. Their kitchen needs to start sweeping their kitchen. Just show up and be there. Secondly is this, uh, shoulder the burden with them. So imagine someone who's faint-hearted. They carry around this burden on their shoulders. They're carrying this gigantic log on their shoulders everywhere they go. And we're just walking past them. We are called for the family to get under the log with them and to walk with them shouldering that burden that they are carrying. Now, don't you wish when people actually were burdened down with something, they would carry logs around so we knew? Like, because in my experience and your experience, um, people come up, they're like, how are you? I'm like, I'm doing great. And I'm not. And I don't mean to, like, lie to them. We're just not always good at sharing the burden amongst each other because we don't want to be a burden. 
And so we're not always good at this whole bearing one another's burden. How do we know? How do we grow our muscle at being able to discern when someone is faint-hearted, when someone is of little soul? Um, here's a corny saying for us. People's eyes don't lie. You like that? People's eyes don't lie. You can see it in their eyes. You can see... Their eyes are the window to the soul. There, there's something that goes on in ministry all the time where like, I'm not even listening to like, what someone's saying in the moment. Like, kind of am, but kind of not. I'm watching their eyes because their eyes will tell me how they're really doing. We've got to figure out a way to see people who are under a burden of something and then come alongside them and bury that burden with them. And then thirdly is this, three ways to encourage the faint-hearted. Speak. Notice that's third. Speak. Now watch all the qualifiers. Well-timed. Spirit-led. Word encouragement. Because we all do this. I do this. In ministry, you come alongside grieving people a lot. You come alongside people who are hurting a lot. And I instantly show up, and because I'm a preacher, I just start moving my mouth. Well, you know, let's really cling to this scripture here and let's do that. And it's just like, Brock, shut up. Why do you do that? Slow down. Be there. Love on them. And then when it comes time, speak well-timed, spirit-led, encouragement right from the word of God. I'll never forget learning this in real time. A couple who was friends of ours years ago went through something extremely heavy in their life. And here they are in our living room and a couple other couples who are friends of us. And, and they're just pouring out their heart and everyone's pouring out their tears. And finally, they get into the middle of our living room floor and they're just on their knees and we're over them, just laying hands on them. We're just praying over them. We're crying. Everyone's crying, covering the carpet in tears. And then someone opened to a psalm. And they read this psalm and you could sense in that room this couple beginning the healing process of surrendering this thing up to the Lord right there. You could hear it in the weeping as this word of God, well-timed, spirit-led word is read over them. Now, what if they would have walked in and a couple hours earlier, they would have shared what just happened. And we went, you know what you need? You need Psalm 68. Boom, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. Not, not good. But there's something about letting the Lord bubble to the surface the encouragement from his word that he wants. But he says, um, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. I believe he's talking about the spiritual weak there, help the weak, related to encourage the faint-hearted, be patient with them all. Listen, we will be a flourishing faith family when we are full of patience and speaking into each other the things that need to be spoken into, discerning by the Spirit of God, not in admonishing those who need encouragement, and not encouraging those who need admonishment, but letting the Spirit give us a spirit of discernment of that. Five signs of a flourishing faith family. Number three is this. We're focused on doing good to everyone. Look at what it says here in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to who? And to who? 
and to everyone. So he, Paul says now, uh, in the household of faith, signs of a flourishing faith family, when someone cuts us in what they said or what they did, we don't retaliate with that. Here's what can so easily happen. I call it the revolving wheel of retaliation. Person one hurts person two. So person two says, hey, if this is the game you want to play, I'm pretty good at it myself. They hurt person one. And around and around the wheel we go until someone steps up and shows the love of Christ. And you've seen this. We've all watched the situation escalate. I went to an all-male college. About finals time every semester. A lot of stressed up testosterone, you know, walking around the dorms. Prime season for some uh, dorm room scuffles to break out. You just walk around like on the lookout. Like when's it going to go down? And you could see it escalate. Someone says something. Someone retaliates with something else. Little nudge of the shoulder as he walks by. That's retaliating with a little push in the back. And before you know it, it's like, boys, get out. It's about to go down. Let's watch this. All male college, you just watch the fights. You didn't break them up. But you could see the escalation happen. And the Lord says, not in my house. This isn't how it works in my house. Someone cuts you with some evil, you repay it with some good. Someone says something that, yeah, but they shouldn't have said it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but they shouldn't have done it like that. Yeah, you're right. Church, listen. You stick around here long enough, you're going to get hurt. Right? Someone's going to say something. Someone's going to do something that wasn't done the best way. How we handle that will speak to how we keep this family feel as a church. Will I retaliate and go into the wheel or will I return it with good? And this isn't only a household, a household of faith rule. He says, do this, live like this with everyone with the people you work with, with your unbelieving family, when they cut you with evil, repay it with good. This is the only thing that God has given us for repayment to evil, and it's good. Not so people will look at us and say, man, what a great guy. How strong were they to respond like that in that situation? So people will see right through us and see that there's a strength inside of us that comes from outside of us, and his name is Jesus Christ. but we're focused on doing good. Fourthly, five signs of a flourishing faith family. Number four, that we're rejoicing and prayerful and thankful no matter the circumstances. Pick it up, verse 16. Here's a memory verse for the week. You ready? Rejoice always. Love those two-word memory verses. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Be full of joy always. Be glad in the Lord always. And I hear you. I hear you. You're going, live in reality, dude. This isn't possible. How do we rejoice always with some things that are going on in our life? Listen, we can rejoice all, we can have joy 
always, because no matter what comes and assails us on every side, no matter what is stripped away from us, no matter what happens to us, the bedrock of our joy is rooted in our Savior. And the bedrock never moves. And the bedrock doesn't shift. And he never goes away. And so though we can be assailed on every side and stripped away of all these things and be, we can be, become a modern day Job where it's just like, how in the world? Like, our feet are firmly planted on who he is. And if everything is stripped away from me, if God takes my health and my family and everything I own, on the day that I die, I'll stand before my Savior. Joy. I get it. We got to fight for that. That preaches really well on Sunday. That lives very difficultly. Should something rock my world tomorrow? But we're fighting for that. Amen, church? Rejoice always. And then to love this, pray without ceasing. Uh, let me translate for that for us in the Greek. That means pray without ceasing. Pray continually. That prayer was never intended by God to be something that only fills one time block in our day planner. Prayer was meant to fill one time block in our day planner as we meet with the Lord and then every other time block throughout the entirety of the day. As we walk into a meeting, we walk in with a spirit of prayerfulness. When someone says, hey, pastor, I, I really need some wisdom on this. Do you want to know? I wish you could get into the head of a pastor when someone's like, can you give me counsel on this massive issue of life? In my head, I'm freaking out. As I said, yes, you know, let's. I'm like, Lord, help. Like the spirit of prayerfulness in everything that we do, constantly in prayer, constantly in prayer, in everything that we do, in everything that we say, there's this undergirding prayerfulness. Pray without ceasing. And then verse 18, give thanks in good circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, something that was helpful for me in understanding this, and I hope it's helpful for you, thankful in everything doesn't necessarily mean thankful for everything. Again, let me use our own life as an example. Lord, may this never come, come true if you would spare us, but for me, if I walked into... If I walked into a doctor's office this week and was told that our two-year-old or our three-month-old has just been diagnosed with something, I'm not thankful for that. But by the power of the Spirit of God, I can maintain thankfulness in that. Do we see the difference there? Thankful in doesn't necessarily mean thankful for. And yet we're told here, we're commanded here, give thanks in all circumstances. And then here it is. Remember, we've been after that in this book. For this is the what? How's it end? This is the, this is the will of God. 
Remember, we're always after that, God, what's your will for your life? He told us earlier in the book, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you avoid sexual immorality. Now we have it again. You want to know what God's will for our life is? Like, pray all the time. And when something happens, give thanks. And when something comes, rejoice. And as we live this way, God's like, boom, my will for your life. This is it but we're rejoicing and we're prayerful and we're thankful no matter the circumstances that come. I know much easier to preach from a pulpit on Sunday than it is at times to live during the week. But Lord, by your spirit, would you give us the power to do this? Five signs of a flourishing faith family. Last one, that together we're seeking to stoke not quench the Spirit's work. I will now proceed to make everyone in the room a bit uncomfortable. Deal? No matter what your tradition of what you thought about the Holy Spirit was growing up. I'm an equal opportunity offender, okay? Verse 9. Nope. Verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. That word quench means, it's often used in Scripture to talk about a fire. When you see, when the Spirit's talked about often in Scripture, there's this picture of kind of a fire with it. And, And Paul, as he writes to them, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, don't quench that. Don't extinguish what the Spirit of God is trying to do. Don't squelch what God by His Spirit is seeking to do. Don't be spirit quenchers. Okay, I don't want to. Help us to know, what does it mean to quench the Spirit? Three ways that we can quench the Spirit. Three ways we can quench the Spirit. And I want you to see these from Scripture. To disregard or or disobey His Word. why, Why do I say that? Keep reading. Because verses 19 through verses 22 are all connected here. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Okay, some of us are like, okay, where are we going with the prophecy thing? Here, at its basic level, when Scripture brings up prophecy, here's it, here it is, thus says the Lord. When the Old Testament prophets showed up on the scene, they're like, hey, God said some stuff, and I'm about to tell you what God said, and uh, we might want to listen to this because this is like the very word of God. But prophecy, thus says the Lord. How thankful are we that we get a thus says the Lord right here in front of us? That God has given us his word. And, and, and Paul's warning them. They didn't have completed canon in front of them. Um, with, let's say when Paul came to town and he's speaking on behalf of the Lord, he's like, don't despise that. God does not look friendly when, when he has said something and we're like, yeah, God didn't say that, whatever. Like we can despise the word when we sit under it, when we read it in the morning and then we walk away just like, Whatever. To disregard it, to disobey it, that we're, we're, we're pouring water on what the Spirit of God wants to do in our midst. Uh, to disregard or disobey his word. Number two is this to ignore his promptings. Okay. Some of us grew up in churches like I did. Um, where it's almost like we didn't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Like we said the Trinity was Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but we really meant Father, Son, and Holy Bible. The Holy Spirit was kind of the awkward step-uncle of the Trinity. 
and we didn't really know what to do. That's one unhealthy extreme. The other unhealthy extreme is that every little warm, fuzzy feeling I get in my belly, it's all experiential and that's all Holy Spirit. That's a bad extreme as well. We have to get to a healthy ground where we actually believe what Jesus said. When he said, it is better for you that I leave. Because when I leave, I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending you a counselor. And he's going to dwell inside you. And as he dwells inside you, he's going to lead you and he's going to prompt you. Now, get this, we got to put some guardrails on that prompting so that the warm, fuzzy feelings we get, we know whether that's the sandwich we just ate or the Spirit of God. The guardrails on the promptings are this. God's Spirit always works in line with his word. Give me an amen on that. God's Spirit always works in line with his word. The Spirit of God works with the word and through the word. So if we say, I've had some people tell me some crazy stuff they've done was led by the Spirit of God. That is in direct contrast to what God says in his word. And I can look back at them and emphatically tell them that is not of the Spirit of God. The Spirit works in the guardrails of the word and also this. Here's a good, here's a good indicator. The Spirit of God's number one ministry is to put the spotlight on the Son, Jesus Christ. So if we're doing something to make much of ourselves and saying that it's of the Spirit of God, I can tell you emphatically it's not. Because the Spirit's all about, look at the Son, He's awesome. Look at the Son, He's awesome. Cool? We good so far? Now I'm going to make some of you really uncomfortable. With those as the guardrails, those of us who grew up over here, we need to hear the Spirit of God can lead us in the day-to-day things. Those of us who grew up over here, we need to hear there's guardrails. The warm fuzzies doesn't always mean the Spirit. Now, with those as a foundation... Would we heed and obey when the Spirit of God prompts us? And I'll tell you a story to try to bring this to reality. And I I really debated whether to share this or not at all because here's what I don't want. I don't want us all walking out of here seeking after some experiences. Say, that's not good. Okay, don't say it, but that's not good. We're not going after like the seeking of experiences. We're going after living in close communion with the Spirit of God and then as he prompts, responding to those things. But um, Eric and I are just married. We're in Crawfordsville. We're having like, you know, back before kids, you can go for a walk in the summer at like 10 at night. And um, it's, it's dark. And we turn the corner on uh, this road and down, down the street there, walking under the streetlights, you could see with each streetlight the shadowy, a shadowy figure. And as I turn the corner, clear to my heart as clear can be, not an audible voice, not an audible voice, but clear to my heart as clear can be was the conviction of the Spirit of God saying, stop and talk to this man. And you know how it goes. The next, like, 500 feet, you're trying to real like, is this, my, is this crazy talking or is this the spirit talk? Like, so we get there, and I'm like, good evening, and I just kind of slowly walk, and then I stopped, and he stopped. 
And I'm like, how are you? And he just starts talking, and I'm like, I won't use his real name. Bill? It was a guy from our church. And they had just had this major family explosion happen in their house that night. And he'd been sitting all by himself in the dark of the football stadium. And he comes down to the sidewalk and we turn the corner and right there, ministry happened. Prayer happened. Encouragement happened right there. And I, we pray for him. He goes this way. Eric and I go this way. And I'm like, when we turn the corner back there, I knew clear as day that we were supposed to stop and talk to this guy. And she goes, if you didn't stop, I was going to stop you and tell you you had to talk to this guy. Those of us over here, don't explain that away. Would we obey the promptings of the Spirit of God? Was that in line with his word? Yes. Did that make much of Jesus? I sure hope so. But when we just reject, and no, 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 he can't do that. He can't do that. He can't do that. Can't do that. He wouldn't do that. Do you think God's sick and tired of people, us telling him what he can and cannot do? I believe in Ephesians 3.20 and 21 God who is able to do exceedingly more than anything that my finite mind can even dream up. According to his spirit that is at work through Jesus Christ in his church, I want that for us, family. I don't want to be quenchers. No good sermon happens without this. I want this for us, that we are pouring fuel on what God wants to do. And if we can quench it by, by disregarding his word and ignoring his promptings, the last thing there is that us persisting in our sin will quench the spirit. For, to go, yeah, I know God says to not do this, but here I go back off into that. Now I know God, but here I go back off into that. Quench, quench, quench. Water, water, water. But listen, when we obey and regard his word and what he has to say, it is like fuel on the flame, baby. And when we don't ignore his promptings, but we're walking sensitive to the leadings and the promptings of his spirit, it's fuel on the flame. And when we're quick to repent of our sin and to turn away and seek holiness, it's fuel on the flame. And I don't want to miss one thing that God has in store for this family because we don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I gotta be done. But our faith family flourishes when we, to distill this whole passage into one statement here, when we respect those over us and deeply, deeply, deeply love those around us. And then when we're part of the things that are gonna stoke the work the Spirit wants to do in our midst, when we stoke the Spirit's work among us, Family, you want that? I want that for us. Stand with me right where you're at. I'm going to close this today because at the end of this letter, there's a beautiful just benediction. 
And Paul closes his letter to these people he loves with these words. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What's God's will? Our sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How's that possible? How do we be kept? I'm not blameless. I'm not spotless. I'm sinful. How's that possible? You ready? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Jesus does it. He did it when he went to the cross. He who calls you is faithful. He, he saved you and he's keeping you until the day that he comes back to get us all and we go party together and worship of him forever. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Y'all better be applying that when we leave. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Harvest your love. Have a great week.